man, it is good to be with each and every single one of you. I'm so glad you guys are hanging out with us today. And I just want to say this. I hope you know God loves you, this church loves you, and I love you. And a big happy Father's Day to all you fellas out there. I know that there's an awful lot of grills and black stones, steaks and burgers and back rubs happening today. So I'm glad you made your time to come to get some church on. I also want to just thank you so much for all the encouraging emails and texts uh, that I've been getting over this sermon series. This sermon series kind of caught me by surprise too. You know, preaching through a book of the Bible is one thing. Preaching through a book of the Bible that's in the Old Testament is another thing. Preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes is another thing altogether. Um, but I shouldn't be surprised. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful and that the Word of God is living and active. And so I shouldn't be surprised that it's taking up residence in our lives and that it's doing a mighty Work. I want to tell you a couple things. Um, we got two more weeks of this sermon series, um, this week and next week, and then we're going to start a three-week sermon series. The first week we're going to talk about heaven, the second week we're going to talk about hell, and the third week we're going to talk about the judgment. Uh, here's why this is important. I feel like it'll be a good opportunity for us to kind of just recalibrate, for us to understand and uh, not only what the full impact of what Jesus did on our behalf, that will stir our affections towards him and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But it's also going to help us to really kind of think through how we want to spend our lives in light of the impact that they can have for the sake of eternity. And then after that, if you're the kind of person who prays for people, I would just encourage you guys, if, you, if you're up for it, to just pray for Jerry and I. We're going to be starting a sermon series. <clears throat> excuse me. Starting a sermon series that's going to be 12 weeks long. Um, it's probably, I believe it's going to be the most important sermon series we're going to do all year. And, but in order for to pull off this sermon series in a way that is um, useful and palatable, um, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in content creation over the next month. And then we'll be debuting it early so that way you guys can be a part of it. But I really believe that God could use this sermon series to bring about um, big time change, not just in your life. Um, but in the life of the people that you care about, your friends and family. And specifically, um, the change I'm talking about is healing and hope. And I uh, feel a, a compulsion to go through that sermon series. I was nervous about it, but I feel like I've worked my way through it. And so if you just want to be praying over the next month, I'm going to be taking some extended time and study. And hopefully when we, when we get back together for that series, uh, you'll be like, I'm glad we prayed for him because this would have been a disaster, okay? Um, that being said, um, what I want to do today is I want to jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If I were to put these two uh, chapters of Scripture into two words, they would be worship and wealth. Worship and wealth. We'll start off uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work 
of your hands. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Now, uh, kind of a complicated text, so let me, you know, if you go to the grocery store, they put the Oreos at the bottom. I'm going to do as much as I can to just put the, the cookies on the bottom shelf for everybody this weekend. So here's a couple things out of this text that are like the easy takeaways. When you gather together to worship, when you gather together with people to worship God, be careful. Guard your steps means pay attention to your lifestyle. Take a good look and evaluate your lifestyle and take responsibility for the areas of your life that are in disobedience to God. He says Listen is more, listening is more important than the sacrifice of fools. He's saying don't fake the funk. Don't show up for church trying to act all spiritual and seem like you've got it all together. Listening to God implies living in obedience to God. It's hearing what God says, reading what God says, and then doing what God's word says. He says when you don't, you're offering a sacrifice of fools. What that means is you could show up for church and you could sing the loudest in your row. Raise your hand the highest in your section. Pray the longest at the steps. But if you're not living in obedience to God, you're offering a sacrifice of fools. He would much rather you, instead of offering a sacrifice of fools and pretending to be incredibly spiritual, he'd much rather you be real and obedient than disobedient and fake. He doesn't want you to offer a sacrifice of fools. And he says fools don't even realize what they're doing. They're too busy trying to be spiritual than to do the spiritual work of obedience. And then he says, be careful with the promises that you make to God. Quick show of hands, how many of you have ever made a promise to God? Oh yeah, me too. I'm not going to make you do this. But if I were the kind of guy who were to ask you, and how many of you didn't keep it, I'm guessing, I'm guessing there'd be some hands up. Right? He says don't do that. It's better for you not to make a commitment to God than to make a commitment to God and not keep it. There's some of us that we, we get excited, we see something, we have this stirring in our heart, it makes total sense, and we're going to start making moves. But if you make a commitment to God, you need to keep it. Don't just say meaningless things. And you guys know this because in your own relationships, what does it do to your earthly relationships when you make a commitment to somebody and you don't keep it? Right? In your marriage, you made a commitment to them. What happens when you don't? When it comes to your relationship, God, have you made, does this mean that God doesn't have grace and mercy? Of course he has grace and mercy. He's just saying he would rather you just be honest than try to pretend like you're completely sold out and committed when you're not. Then Solomon turns his attention to the accumulation and the emptiness of wealth. Now, it's... Uh, my family hates on me. They call it fads. I call it seasons, okay? There are certain seasons that I go through. Like during the winter season, my go-to snack is oftentimes graham crackers and icing. And oh, man, I don't know if we just grew up super poor or what, but like I, that's like, I talk about that and people are like, what? I'm like, well, you put them in the freezer on a paper plate, you pull them out. Anyhow, um, I have road trip, I have road trip food. How many of you guys have like a go-to road trip snack? 
Yeah, mine is the uh, trolley sour gummy worms. Yeah, put them in my lip like Copenhagen or something, and I just go <laughs> until all, I just do. It's, I don't know where I picked that up from. My mom's family's from Missouri, so that might explain some of it. Um, and Mountain Dew. And if you drink enough Mountain Dew and eat enough gummy worms, you get heartburn, which keeps you awake because you can't fall asleep. Uh, top five uh, all-time favorite snacks is peanut M&Ms. How many of you would put peanut M&Ms in the top? Oh, yeah. Praise God for those. And if you go to Sam's, buy them in bulk. You can get sick. Um, now, my favorite uh, article, or my favorite article, my favorite, my favorite clothing piece to eat. I got to be honest with you. It's got to be. No. My, my favorite sports snack, like if I'm watching football, is spi spicy Doritos. With, and this place is in Quincy, how cool is this, with the red cactus medium salsa. If you know, you know. And if you don't know, when you get done with church, you know where to go, okay? <laughs> uh, it is so stinking good. Did you know that Doritos have been scientifically engineered to leave you feeling empty? You never get full on a bag, uh, on a, well, how many of you have accidentally eaten a bag of Doritos? <laughs> now you know. Yeah, you just, I didn't know. Let me, let me walk you through this. They have a powerful savory flavor known as umami. Say umami. That's a good word. You'll want to keep that one. That'll be my word for the day, umami. Um, it means savory. It means savory. Uh, as well as, so this savory flavor known as umami, as well as what food scientist Stephen Witherly calls long hang time flavors which stimulate memories. Which is probably why when I get ready to watch a football game, I automatically go, I need some Doritos. The flavors are balanced so carefully that no one flavor over overpowers any of the other flavors because when your body gets an overload of a particular flavor, it starts to feel full. But if it's perfectly balanced where one doesn't overpower the other, you can just keep eating. Then, the two primary acids in the Dorito chip is designed to turn your saliva glands into waterfalls to wash the Dorito down gets even further. Then to maximize the pleasure of the calories coming from the Dorito, half of the calories come from fat, which is what allows you to take a bite and get a good crunch. And then have you noticed that the Dorito almost dissolves or melts in your mouth? Yeah. Some of you are like, I love this church because <laughs> I love Doritos. But here's the deal, when the chip vanishes in your mouth, it makes your brain think that the calories have disappeared as well, so you can just keep eating. It's the same science behind cotton candy. The, or the colors of the Dorito are the three colors that consumers are the most attracted to. And then they grind them so finely that after it, you take a bite and it starts to dissolve, it turns into a powder that fills every crevice and crack in your mouth, helping dentists to get their third homes across the country, right? Okay? And it leaves you defenseless, and you end up taking another bite. Then you find yourself eating a full family-sized bag 
of spicy nacho Doritos and a couple jars of salsa, and it's halftime. <laughs> Doritos are designed to leave you feeling empty. And so is wealth. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. He's saying, in this fallen world, don't be surprised when greed remains unchecked. Everyone is going to try and get into everybody else's pocket. He keeps saying, remember the phrase, under the sun, that everything under the sun is meaningless. It's all lower story. And people who are only aware of the lower story and only operate and only follow the lower story are going to be lacking in morals and in mercy. He says, don't be surprised. And if you're going to be an upper story person living in a lower story world, be careful who you marry, who you date, who you do business with, because the upper story values and the lower story values compete with one another. They're at war with one another. They're not compatible with one another. All of us see the brokenness in the systems around us, and until you and I aim our lives at the upper story, it's only going to get worse here in the lower story. 5 verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. In one sentence, he doubles down twice. He says, loving money and loving wealth will not satisfy. It will leave you feeling empty. The more we have, the more we want. You've probably heard another pastor say this. Every pastor I've ever heard talks about this because it's true. And they always make this clarification. Money's not the problem. It's not. Money's not good or bad. It can be used for good and it can be used for bad. Money's not the problem. It's our affection for it, our worship of it, our sacrifices for it, our addiction to it that cause the problem. Money is a tool to be used, not a God to be worshipped. Ecclesiastes 5.11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The more we have, the more we end up spending. How many of you remember being in your 20s and you're going, if I only made X, my life would be so much better. And then in your 30s, you found yourself making X and you thought to yourself, if I only made Y, my life would be so much better. And then you found yourself in your 40s making Y and you thought, if only I made Z, then my life would be so much better. And then you find yourself making Z. And you're going, we are spending all we're making no matter how much we make. And it leaves you feeling empty. He says the more you have, the more people show up wanting what you have. The nicer the house, the better the security system. The message actually says, if you go home and read this verse in your message trans, I wouldn't call it a translation, but in the message, it says, the more loot you get, the more looters show up that there's always people trying to put their hands in your pocket. You know what he says? The very best thing that you can do with your stuff 
Look at it, use it, enjoy it, and point it to heaven. That's what you do with your stuff. Don't try to find your purpose, your meaning, or your significance in them, because it's not there. The car you have, the house you have, the property, the RV, don't make you cool or friendly or attractive. If you get a really nice car and you're a mean person, guess what? You're just a mean person with a nice car. Cars don't make you nice. If you're an ugly person, you get a really nice house. You're just an ugly person with a house. It doesn't change who you are. Only Jesus can change people. Stuff just magnifies people. Jesus is the one who changes people. And if you think by getting the nice stuff that you'll end up getting people to hang out with you, you'll be attracting the wrong people to you because they'll be just as shallow as you are. Because if they weren't your friend before the car, if they weren't your friend before the house, what happens when you lose the car? What happens when you lose the house? Because if you had to have it to get them, you'll lose it when you don't. Buy your stuff, enjoy it, take pleasure in it, but don't worship it. Leverage it. Ecclesiastes 5.12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. A laborer sleeps good at night. They go into work, they punch in, they punch out, they go home, hang out with their family, not stressed, just doing their thing. But a wealthy person is always worried and wondering about how do I handle my finances and what do I do with all of my wealth. They're worried about do I have enough put aside, the markets, the interest rates, the geopolitical factors. I knew a veterinarian, not my dad, um, who, was in, who shared with me once, he was in surgery on an animal. He had CNBC on, and it had the ticker that showed the stock market. He had uh, played pretty heavily in the commodity market, and while he was in surgery, he was losing tens of thousands of dollars by the minute. He couldn't get out of the surgery to hedge the market to make a call, and by the time the surgery was over, he'd lost hundreds. I read a story about John D. Rockefeller. His life was almost ruined by money. At age 53, he was the world's only billionaire earning about a million dollars a week, but he was a sick man who lived on milk and crackers and couldn't sleep because he was always worried about his wealth. But then he started giving his money away and his health changed dramatically and he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. Saying, leverage your wealth, don't. Worship it. Ecclesiastes 5.13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Now, he's not saying don't save. Have an emergency fund. Have a retirement account. Try and leave something behind for your kids. He's not saying there's anything wrong with that. He's saying there are people who are always saving for a rainy day, but they never enjoy the sunshine. And you may know people like that. It's never enough. And they're hoarding, distance them from relationship and distance them from making memories. And their hoarding comes from one of two places, either greed or a lack of faith in God's provision. This is another thing he says, Ecclesiastes chapter four, or verse 14. 
For wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. The more you have, the more you can lose. You can have it one moment and you can lose it the next. There are no U-Hauls in heaven. You cannot take it with you. Wealth can be an absolute vapor. You can try and hold on to it, but it will slip through your fingers. And when it's gone, then what? If that was your God, if that was what you worshipped, when it disappears, now you have nothing And their lives are lived in anguish and affliction and anger. You struggle to keep it from slipping through your fingers only to find yourself depressed and struggling mentally and emotionally with the loss of your wealth because your God died. Your God disappeared. That's why Jesus says, do not store treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store it for yourself treasures in heaven where there is no moth, there is no rust, and there are no thieves. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can't live in the lower story and find everything you need here. There's no meaning. There's no significance. And if you leave your treasure on earth, it will be destroyed. And if your treasure is here on earth, that means your heart is here on earth too. Jesus is saying, take what you have and aim it out of the lower story and in to the upper story. Look at what it says in verse 18. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is what he's saying. Get a job, earn a wage, and use it to care for those around you, enjoy its benefits, and advance the kingdom of God. Take the blessings that God has given you. Take the blessings that are coming to you and use it to bless those around you and those who will come after you. Here, Solomon is summarizing. He's saying, don't spend your life trying to acquire more. Don't spend your life trying to hoard more. Don't just spend your life enjoying what you've been given. These people don't spend their time thinking about how, to, how short life is or about all the challenges of the past or all the challenges ahead. Instead, they just enjoy what God has given them. They're just thankful. Then look what happens here. This is verse, or chapter six. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. 
Who's Solomon talking about here? I think he's talking about himself. Here's a man who had absolutely everything he could ever need, and he found no satisfaction in it. He called it meaningless. Remember, Solomon is the wealthiest man who ever lived, and he's saying it's meaningless. We know this to be true, right? It's when you go to a developing country and you find nothing but smiles and joy. And then you come back here to your life in comparative paradise. There's not a lot of joy and not a lot of smiles. Maybe Solomon wasn't just talking about himself. Maybe there are some of us who are wealthy and we can't even enjoy it. He's saying wealth does not equal satisfaction, enjoyment, purpose, meaning, or significance. Now here's what I need you to hear me say. This is the tough part of the message. This sermon is for us. I know, I know, I know, I know. You were hoping it was for somebody else. I sure wish so. Where is so-and-so today, by the way? Is there a special text hotline that you know what Clayton's talking about beforehand so you don't have to come for the ones you don't want? Because so-and-so should have definitely been here. Because we are always thinking that the wealthy people are other people. Right? I mean, some of us, we like to show off our cars and we like to show off our houses and we like to have our second homes and we like to have our RVs and we like to have our recreational land and we like to have our cool hobbies and we like to take pictures on really nice vacations and we like to be wealthy all the rest of the time except for when God calls us wealthy. Then we're like, oh boy, not us. So-and-so should have really heard this. Because for us, wealth is always comparative. As long as you and I can identify somebody who has more than us, we are able to rationalize that we are not the wealthy people. There are some of you today, as you were getting ready for church, you walked into a house just for clothes called a closet. And it was full. And you came out and you said this out loud. I have nothing to, oh yeah. There are some of you got out, uh, you're gonna leave church today and you're gonna pull into your house and before you pull into your house, you're gonna press a button and uh, your car house door is gonna go up and you're gonna park your car in its own house. And we're not the wealthy ones. Remember, the Bible was written for all people, for all time, for all geographic regions. We are the one percenters. And if a gathering of one percenters can get together and come to the conclusion that we're not the wealthy ones because of the 0.1 percenters. Satan is so crafty that he can get people that look just like you and me together and convince us that we're not wealthy. He's coming to us from the future with all the money you could ever want and he's saying it's meaningless under the sun. And if he's saying it's meaningless, then what are you and I supposed to do with our wealth? I'll tell you. Don't keep it 
under the sun. Send it to heaven. When we take our wealth and we send it towards heaven, we get to enjoy it twice. We get to enjoy it here, and we get to enjoy it again in heaven. There's a guy here on our staff at our church. His name is Bill. He worked at Western Illinois for many years as the chaplain, and then eventually he came on staff here at our church as we were trying to expand the crossing inside. Um, He's been working and keeping track of all the people who are getting baptized. And this past weekend at Western Illinois Correctional Center, they passed 1,000 baptisms. Isn't that amazing? And if you are the kind of person who invests your wealth beyond the sun and into eternity, you were a participant in over 600 of those baptisms through your giving. Now, you're just gonna get to see the video here on earth that says this past weekend, or this past month, we had six baptisms in all of our campuses. We'll pray, it'll be awesome, it'll be super cool. But, 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 but. You'll get to enjoy it again. Because those prisoners are going to get transferred to other prisons and they're going to start Bible studies in their other prison. They may never get out and you meet them here, but they'll be there. Now the cool part is, is it'll take all of eternity for you to hear all of the stories about how God took just that one area of obedience and that one step of faith and used it in amazing and miraculous ways. There is a couple who's a part of our church, and they're uh, contagiously generous. Like, you can't talk to them without them trying to do something. You you almost have to walk away. And um, they ran into a a couple who who had just moved here, and they had, all they had was a suitcase of clothes. And so they helped them uh, make sure they got a washer and dryer. And then they took them furniture shopping. And then they were like, you know what, we're going to take them out for a really nice meal so that way they can have, you know, like a, a nice date night. And then... Uh, they knew of this young, uh, these young girls who went through a really hard time. And so they just made the commitment that they're going to pay for their camp every single year. And so for the last four years, they've been paying for them to go to camp, but then the girls moved. And so then they decided, okay, well, I guess we'll just drive to wherever they live now, and we'll pick them up, and we'll buy them all the clothes they need and all the sleeping bags they need, and then we'll drive them back up to camp, and we'll drop them off. And you know what? When they're at camp, we're going to at least come and spend one night with them and eat a meal with them. And so for four years, uh, this woman's been doing that. And she was doing it two weeks ago at high school camp for four years. And on Friday night, she sat down with her and had whatever that we were eating on that Friday night with all the kids. And then on Sunday, she gets the text message from that girl that says, will you baptize me? And so on Sunday, she hopped back in her car and she drove all the way back up to our camp. And she got to see it here. But she's going to get to see it again in heaven as that girl finds a Christian man and marries him and raises her house in a way that honors the Lord and leads Bible studies. She gets to enjoy it there. You get to enjoy it twice. It's when you pay for a kid's scholarship at camp and you get an opportunity to see them accept Jesus here and then having no clue how God is going to use them to mentor and disciple people in the future. And they can trace their relationship to God when you get to heaven, back to you and your faithfulness and your obedience, and you'll get to meet all the people who can trace their faith back to that person. We honor God when we bless a young couple with a date night to focus on strengthening their marriage. We honor God when we enjoy our wealth and we use it to help people have a, a getaway at our second home or borrow the RV for a weekend. We enjoy it when we gather people together, we pay for the meal, and we just go around the table saying, let's celebrate the goodness of our God, hear me, we can either worship our wealth 
or we can worship with it. And the decision makes all the difference. Not just in the lower story, but in the upper story. And I hope you'll make the right one. We're moving to a time of decision. There are, uh, let me just, there's some people in this room and over time, your wealth has kind of got a hold on you. And if you try to hold on to your wealth, that's exactly what will happen is it will, it will hold on to you. And then when you want to let go, it'll be incredibly hard. And when the music stops on your life, you don't want to be holding on to your wealth. You want to be holding on to Jesus. That's where you want to be. You want to hold on to him because he's the only one who will never let you down. And there's some of you in here today, you're going, man, you know, it's a good thing I'm a rich person because how, how much does it cost to start an intimate personal relationship with Jesus? I got bad news for you. You can't afford it. No, you can't. And there's some of you like, well, that's kind of depressing because I'm poor. Oh, what about me? Well, the good news is uh, it doesn't matter how much you have because it's free. It's the free gift of God's grace that he gave to us, to you and to me. And every single week here at The Crossing, we talk about people starting an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I need you to hear me say this. You can have it as well. You can start that relationship. And I need you to know something. Everything I've ever wanted in this life and everything I've ever had has eventually let me down. When I was uh, about 10 years old, maybe a little bit younger, I wanted a Huffy 10-speed bike. I don't want to brag, but I mean I, I mean, I wanted it. And I hope you guys won't find me too wealthy, but I mean, I, I bought one. And uh, I bought it because um, I did a bunch of chores around my house for $1 bills. And when I had saved up $110, we went to Jack's in Fort Madison, Iowa, and I walked in there like a stripper with a bunch of singles, and I bought that Huffy. And um, all that thing did was get flat tires. Uh, I wanted a four-wheeler, and I eventually bought one. Because uh, all the cool kids when I was growing up had four-wheelers, and I didn't. I had a horse. And four-wheelers are faster than horses, and four-wheelers don't poop. And uh, I wanted one. And that thing's been rolled and beat up so many times that when you just look at it, you're like, is everything okay, Clayton? Like, your marriage all right? It just looks like nobody loves it. I wanted, uh, the Chevy Avalanche came out, and I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. And I wanted one. And I'll be honest with you guys, I bought it. I bought one. And nobody ever was like, when I was at a stop sign, roll your window down. And I would roll it down. Can we be friends? Because you look so cool in that car. Never happened. It just got horrible gas mileage. I wanted a hot tub. And I bought one. Didn't fit in it. Uh, I got in it. Most of the water came out. I couldn't get Jennifer to get in it with me ever because there was no room. So I had to get rid of it. Listen, all of, this is going to sound dumb. I just listed off all the things that 21-year-old uh, Clayton thought was like a home run, like you're killing it, man. Those are all the things. Like if I was the guy who had an avalanche and a hot tub and a four-wheeler, look 
out. And they all let me down. Hot tub wasn't big enough. Huffy got flat tires. The avalanche got bad gas mileage. There's only one thing that I've ever laid my hands on that has never, ever let me down. There's only one thing that I've ever laid my hands on that just keeps getting better and sweeter. That every time I worship him, he gets better. Every time I read my Bible, he gets better. Every time I pray, he gets better. There is only one thing that has never let me down. In fact, there's only one thing that has not only not ever let me down, but continually holds me up, and that is Jesus Christ. And he will never fail. He will never let you down. His stock price is always up and to the right. And until you have a hold on him, you'll never know. But those of you who know, you know. And so you can go back to worshiping your stuff, but your stuff will let you down. But you can worship him with your stuff. There's some of you in here today The first thing you gotta do is actually step into that intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it's gotta be. If you're a father in here, I'm gonna just tell you, if you've never started a relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the best things you could give your family is an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The knowledge of where you will spend eternity. The stats are in that this family or this world needs godly fathers, godly Husbands, and where you go, your family will follow. And if you've never started that, there's gonna be somebody over there by the baptistry who'd love a chance to talk to you about it. Hear me, your wealth can buy you sex, but not a soulmate. It can buy you a house, but not a home. It can buy you clothes, but not character. It can buy you popularity, but not purpose. It can buy you a vehicle, but not values. It can buy you a boat, but not blessings. It's Father's Day weekend. It can buy you a smoker, but not salvation. It can buy you a grill, but not grace. It can buy you farmland, but not fulfillment. There's only one thing that can do that, and that's Jesus. And if you don't have him, you don't have what it takes. To those of you who already have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm just gonna encourage you to just get down on your knees and say, God, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given me. And God, help me to be a great steward of my wealth. And the last thing I'm gonna encourage you guys to do if you want is we're doing a kind of a refit here at 48th Street for broadcast purposes for the other locations. So we kind of changed up the stage a bit. We're in the middle of getting new stairs. And uh, these stairs are the ones we have for this weekend and they don't have carpet on them yet. And if, if you guys have been around here a long time, uh, it's kind of like a, a thing we do here. Until we covered up with carpet, we covered up with prayers. And uh, there have been prayers that have been prayed and answered on the steps of the past. And these steps, we don't know how long they're gonna be here, but there's gonna be people who are gonna come up and they're gonna put their elbows on these steps. And they're gonna put their wrists on these steps and they're gonna put their heads on these steps and they're gonna cry out to God and I would love the foundation of their prayers to be your prayers. And if you'd be willing to pray for them or write down a prayer for them, we w- there's Sharpies up here and we'd love for you guys to do that. Would you stand with me? God, do a mighty work right now in this group of people bring about a change in every life. God, I know there's all kinds of confusion and frustration at times, but we know that your power can supersede it all. And so I'm asking you to do that work in us 
right now. Give us clarity on how we're supposed to respond and then give us the courage to walk it out. In your name I pray, amen.